Eve wasn't created to just sort of tag along. She was created with a specific set of responsibilities, which were distinct from her husband's. Eve's failure with regards to those God-given responsibilities ultimately led to the fall, and it's terrifying to see those same failures repeated constantly in so many Catholic marriages. We're all just making the same mistakes that Eve made, and we wonder why our marriages are struggling. My mom um, introduced me to the theology of the body pretty early. We were homeschoolers. And nearly 15 years ago, I heard this quote paraphrased in one of my classes. Quote, The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Since I'd only heard it paraphrased, I I actually had to look it up uh, to be able to give the reference, which is included in this week's podcast description. Since hearing it, I've meditated on this image very often. Some years later, I was given another image to meditate on, which, bear with me, is not directly related, but I think it's still worth sharing. Um... A religious sister bid me envision a tabernacle within my heart, a sanctuary space surrounding it, and the communion rail preventing anyone from entering the sanctuary space. This space within me should only be for Christ. No one should be able to enter it, not even my husband. Um, Meditating on these two images together over the last few years eventually inspired a third image, which I would like to share with all of you now. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 reads, quote, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. End quote. So from Genesis, we understand that the garden was entrusted to Adam's care. But there are two gardens, the Garden of the World and the Garden of Man's Heart. The image I have to offer for your meditation is this, that when the rib was taken from Adam's side to create Eve, that rib was the gate to the garden of his heart. And that gate was broken open by God. And Eve was given to guard that garden, to till it and to keep it, just as the garden of Eden was given to man to till and to keep. It's interesting that man and woman were created from different sources, albeit going back to the same source, the dust. But God goes to the lowest form of creation, the dust. And from the dust, he takes man, Adam, as well as all the other creatures. Whereas in the making of woman, Eve, he takes her from the highest form of creation up until that point, man. She inherits the source of coming from dust from having been taken from the man. But I believe that distinction where she's taken directly from man and not directly from dust is worth noting. Woman is sometimes referred to as the pinnacle, the crescendo, or the crown 
of creation, and I've included sources from Crisis Magazine, Jason Evert, and Sister Mary Gabriel um, in the description of this week's episode if you're interested in hearing more of that commentary. There is a hierarchy to creation. The earth, the sun, and moon, and stars by which to see it, the dry land and the ocean, all of inanimate creation serves the next tier up, if you will. Um, But aside from giving vegetation, which is the next tier up, a place to grow, the plants also, in a sense, elevate the inanimate tier of creation, giving it a higher purpose. Inasmuch as the inanimate tier of creation serves the vegetation, the vegetation elevates the earth and the light, making it more beautiful, drawing greater glory for God out of it. Then we have the animals, same thing. The vegetation serves as nourishment for the animals, and simultaneously, the animals give the vegetation a higher purpose than just growing for the sake of growth. So we come to Adam. When Adam is created, the Lord brings him each of the animals. Genesis chapter 2 verses 19 to 20 says that the Lord does this to, quote, see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper fit for him, end quote. So God gives dominion over the animals to Adam and they are to serve him. And again, simultaneously, he elevates them. He names them. Names are very important in sacred scripture. This naming of animals indicates that a specific purpose is given. We see this time and again in sacred scripture where when a name is given or changed, it's because there is a particular mission or purpose conferred upon that person. Woman then being created after Adam, following Adam, as well as the distinction that she is taken from Adam and not from the dust as everything else was, indicates that she was created with a high purpose, the highest purpose, to help Adam towards heaven. This is her service to him, to elevate him, to bring him higher and closer to his creator. A quick reminder that the word service comes directly from the paragraph in the catechism, which we discussed last week, so it's nothing to get upset about. This idea of there being two gardens, two assignments, one given to man and one given to woman, and that the assignment given to woman was man, is supported by 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 7 to 9. Quote, Woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. End quote. This last sentence especially, quote, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man, end quote. This reference to man's God-given purpose being the care of the world, and the woman's God-given purpose being the care of her husband, woman for man, but not man for woman. 
If we follow this commentary on the hierarchy of creation, then we need to talk about the responsibility that comes with women being the crown of creation. With the creation of woman comes a message, sort of a, the buck stops here. You see, the garden of the world suffers when woman neglects the garden of man's heart. And how the fall of Adam and Eve plays out in Genesis is actually incredibly characteristic of the modern dynamic between fallen spouses. And I'd like to give a little bit of a different take on that. So God's instructions to Adam in Genesis chapter 2 verses 15 to 17 reads, quote, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may eat freely of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. End quote. The creation of woman, of Eve, comes after these instructions given to man, to Adam. Eve's creation is described in verses 18 to 24. Again, this is chapter 2 of Genesis. So we presume from the second account of creation that it fell to Adam to communicate God's command to his wife. This means that when Eve took the fruit, she was making a very serious judgment and criticism of her husband's decision for their family. In this case, it was a choice to follow God. And this is the different take that I, that I want to give on the fall. We've all heard the um, traditional commentaries on the fall um, concerning the pride of man. I think there's a lot more going on here that's very nuanced. In Eve's decision, we see a number of things. We see, again, a rejection of her husband's choice to follow God. We also see an insult to her husband's competence as the God-ordained head of their family. God established Adam as head of the family. And for her to go against that is an insult to him. It questions his competence. It shows a lack of trust on Eve's part. It shows that she doesn't necessarily trust that her husband always does his best by her. And it also reveals a dangerous and sinful thought that she can do better by him than he has done by either of them. I think the worst part in all of this, and again, very typical of modern married dynamics, is that um, the way that Eve was tempted in Genesis gives me reason to suppose that she honestly thought she was doing good. And this part you have probably heard in traditional commentary. You'll notice in Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, it says, quote, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. End quote. And here in these verses, you do get a glimpse of some of the 
sort of rationalizing that Eve goes through, that she saw that the tree was good, because it is good. It's God's creation, and all that God creates is good, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that it was beautiful, and beauty is, again, God's creation, and objectively good. And finally, you'll notice that the devil does not suggest that the consumption of this fruit will put Adam and Eve at odds with their creator. The devil doesn't suggest a rebellion. He doesn't suggest that they will be in a position to rival God or to replace him. The devil suggests that by committing this sin, they will both be brought closer to their creator, that they will become like God. So you see here that the devil is taking a pure desire on Eve's part to be closer to God and also a pure desire to help her husband towards God and twisting that desire by saying, in essence, that the end justifies the means. And I think that that's very much where we wives falter constantly, is choosing to believe that the end justifies the means, that all the nuance of Eve going against Adam's headship, the insult to his competence, the distrust of his dedication to her, and his best intentions to serve her, in this moment she justifies all of that with this end point of thinking to bring him closer to God. And how does Adam respond? You know, honestly, I think that Adam was hurt, that he was very, very hurt. I think that because this is the first time that some creation of God's has rejected Adam's care, has suggested that his care has been less than adequate has been, in fact, unsatisfactory. So much so that Eve presumes to take things into her own hands. Why would she do that unless she felt so strongly that Adam had failed? This is an entirely new experience for Adam. N none of the other creatures have ever questioned his headship. None of the other creatures have questioned his care. This is a new sensation for him. And I wonder very much if Adam responded the way that he did in going along with what Eve apparently wanted and handing him the forbidden fruit, less so because he wanted to disobey God and more because he wanted to please his wife. Again, this is the first time that such a choice has been placed before him. We know that he was thunderstruck at Eve's creation. In Genesis 2, verse 23, he says, quote, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. End quote. And we just don't see a reaction like this coming from Adam in response to any other aspect of creation. Furthermore, God does not condemn this reaction. He doesn't speak out to temper Adam's wonder and admiration for his wife. God blesses this response of man to woman. And from this, we know that this desire of Adam to make his wife happy is therefore also an objectively good thing. Moreover, it doesn't make sense 
for Adam to have zero problems up until this point, being obedient to God, following God's commands, carrying out God's orders, enjoying God's gifts of home and wife and all of creation, and then all of a sudden saying to himself, you know, nope, this doesn't cut it anymore. I can do better without God. You know, that doesn't make any sense. What we are seeing here is that Eve uses the influence that she has over her husband, an influence that God created her to be able to have. And we're going to get into this very shortly. She uses that influence to lead him into sin. Again, not because either of them are suddenly reveling in the idea of evil, but because both of them see a good end, which they use separately to justify their means. Eve uses the idea of a good end of bringing her husband closer to God to justify the sin of going against Adam's headship. And Adam uses the idea of the good end of making his wife happy to justify the sin of going against God. This interaction that we refer to as the fall I feel is so typical of a common current dynamic between spouses. When a wife rejects her husband's best efforts to pastor, provide, and protect, when she criticizes and displays distrust, when she ultimately shows that she believes in herself more than she believes in her husband, and that she considers herself to be superior, better informed, whatever. I think the temptation for men is to back down and either give in to whatever the woman wants or to back away and allow woman to do as she pleases and just try to make himself as tiny of an object as possible. This complaint that grown men, for example, are spending so much time shut up in their room playing video games has me asking, well, is what he's doing outside of that room valued and appreciated and respected? Because if it's not, then he's going to spend more time in there where he's sort of safe from his disrespectful, distrustful, ungrateful wife. Moreover, this justification of means by an end, I think it's safe to assume that wives who consider themselves to be practicing Catholics truly believe that they're operating on the best of intentions. But like Eve, where we fail is we use good ends to justify bad means. We don't consider how much it pains our husband to be made to feel like a failure. Even when he does objectively fail, and he will because he is human, when our husband fails, we don't need to make him feel worse by rubbing it in. And it might not even be that we're being particularly nasty about it either. I don't get the sense from Genesis that Eve was trying to scare her husband into submission or that she was trying to order him around. She didn't command him, as far as we know, to take the fruit. I think the best way to describe what Eve was doing was she was trying to rescue her husband. It's not meanness necessarily that makes our methods wrong. It's the fact that our husband is called by God to do certain things in order to come into his God-given role as pastor, provider, and protector of his family. And we might be super sweet about it and still 
be getting in the way and still be usurping his role as head of the family. I know that the quote, uh, with great power comes great responsibility, is seemingly overshared and overapplied everywhere. But I think this is precisely the great power and the great responsibility of woman. It's nothing to boast of. It's a serious and terrible charge. The way that Galadriel describes herself as terrible in the Fellowship of the Ring. This is at the end of chapter 7 of book 2. She says, quote, And I shall not be dark but beautiful and terrible as the morning and the night, fair as the sea and the sun and the snow upon the mountain, dreadful as the storm and the lightning, stronger than the foundations of the earth, all shall love me and despair. Galadriel names all of the most excellent and attractive qualities of woman, that she is beautiful, fair, strong, that she is lovely. But there is insight here, that if she steps out of that role which is given to her and seeks to take on more than she is made for, it's not that she loses any of those qualities, but they're diminished because she also becomes terrible and dreadful to behold. This last line is very telling. All shall love me and despair. Woman's responsibility as the crown of creation to till and to keep the garden of man's heart is a beautiful and terrible charge. The purity of the mission can be so easily twisted, so easily taken advantage of, so easily ruptured. And yet the implications of the role, the influence that woman keeps over man, even when the purity of the mission is compromised by her own choices, remains. When she does him a disservice, the domino effect is that he has a harder time tilling and keeping the garden of the world. Now, in sharing all of this with my husband, um, because I, I like to share with him what I'm going to talk about in my podcast and ask if it makes sense, he asked me, you know, if this is true, how does it circle back with woman being put under man's care? I think this is a great question. It's a great point. Modern women get all worked up about being called to depend on man, being called to be led by him. My thought here is that God also puts himself in a place of humility through the incarnation and the Eucharist. In a sense, he is subject to the free will of man. He humbles himself before our free will. He leaves himself open to rejection. He allowed evil men who abused their free will to put him to death. And to this day, he puts the care of his body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist into the consecrated hands of mere mortals, mere mortals who can desecrate, who can disrespect. Woman, therefore, is also called to put herself into this place of humility, that whilst as the crown of creation, she is to have care of the highest charge, which is her husband, she also submits herself to him, mirroring that truth, that while we are gods, that while we are in his power, that while our very existence is contingent upon remaining within the thought of God, God also puts himself truly into our hands to be adored or abused. 
This mirroring of God by woman is captured in the Hebrew word, which has been translated variably into helper or helpmate or helpmeet. Uh, in Genesis. It's found in chapter 2, verses 18 and 20. The word is Azer. Now, Azer has military applications, but only two applications in sacred scripture to persons. The person of God, the Father, in Exodus, Deuteronomy, the Psalms, and Hosea, and the person of woman, in Genesis at her creation prior to the fall. I'm not an expert on this concept. I don't pretend to be. I've provided links to a couple of sources if you're interested in learning more about Azer specifically. Um, again, this is in the podcast description. But I do want to close out this episode with two general things about this implied parallel between woman and God as helpers of man towards heaven. The first is that God gave us free will, which means that however woman is to help man, it must be in a way that's respectful of that free will. If God doesn't control man, then neither can woman, nor should she. As St. John Paul the Great said in Redemptoris Missio, section 39, quote, the church proposes, she imposes nothing, end quote. So in whatever way a woman helps a man towards heaven, it cannot be through control. It must be in a way which respects his free will enabling and allowing him to move towards heaven of his own accord, out of love for the good, not in a manipulative way that has him moving out of fear of his wife. In the long run, this fear of his wife will not bring him to heaven, and his wife will be held accountable for instilling that fear. The second point being that as attractive as a life of sin is, and we know it's attractive, that's, that's why we fall into sin, is because sin is attractive. But the fact that there are saints attests to the attractiveness, the appeal of holiness above and beyond a life of sin. These two points together form the foundation for so much of what I want to cover with this podcast. In short, that if a wife is to help her husband, she cannot control him, but rather the challenge before her is to make a life of holiness attractive to her husband so that he will choose it constantly and consistently of his own free will. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find all the quotes and resources referenced in today's episode on our website. We'd love to hear from you, and we're looking forward to having you with us again next week on the Will to Wife podcast. Mm-hmm.